Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. Today I am broadcasting from my warehouse since the internet went out at my house, which is why I have a very interesting background. Um, and I just wanted to let everybody know that uh, many people have asked me if there's some way that they can support these webinars with Wendy. Um, what I've done is I've created a Patreon account. So if you go to Patreon and go to Murdoch Method, um, if you wanna do a small donation, it's $5 a month, be very happy, it's not required. This is webinar number 248. So um, that's just uh, for those of you who really feel like you're benefiting from these webinars and feel like you would like to donate, that'd be great. No, re no requirement whatsoever. All the webinars are then posted up on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel, free for you to watch, listen to. And remember there's a podcast called Wendy's Winnie's available on iTunes, Amazon, and I think Audible, where we upload the audio portion of all the webinars and you can listen to them. Today, my guest is Lynn Acton. And I met Lynn many years ago in Pennsylvania when she came down to ride with me because her sister Danny was riding with me. Hi, Danny, I know you're out there. Um, and we met there and then um, that's kind of how we got started. So I'd like to welcome you today, Lynn. Thanks for joining me. And we're gonna talk about protector leadership. Thanks, Wendy, it's a pleasure to be here. I have admired your teaching since my, my first lesson with you and your lessons have had a profound impact on my riding. And my horse says, thank you. That's great, that's really nice. Yeah. So Lynn, I know you've been a horsewoman for many of these long years, but um, give us a, a kind of like a brief overview of your background. Cause when I looked at your bio, it looks like you've done quite a lot in your lifetime. I, a whole bunch of different things. I started um, as a teenager, I swapped riding um, privileges for barn shores working for a horse dealer. And so that was an incredible education because he was elderly and not well. And so we kids were pretty much on our own. And I had to figure out a lot by listening to the horses and by reading absolutely everything I could find in my school and community libraries. So pretty much I learned from the horses and from some of the greatest horse people of the day. And that and, was up in New York state, right? If I got it right. Um, no, that was actually down in Pennsylvania, closer to where Danny lives. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Yep. And yeah. so um, did you go to college? What, you know? I did. I, I, went, I went to college. I studied sociology and uh, just because that was the most interesting thing to me. And then I went to graduate school and I got a, a master's in system science. And I, something was always missing in my life. So I got back into horses really seriously. But I like looking at the big picture of things. Um, I never specialized in any one area. So I've ridden hunt seat, dressage, Western trail. Um, we've done agility. My horse bronze was the 2018 Equagility world champion. And that was just a matter of sort of perseverance and following the instructions um, that, that we got as we went through the agility courses. But, uh, we, but bronze and I've done a lot of different things. And I rode a lot of other people's horses before I had my own. So a lot of different variety of, of background, which says I've learned from a whole bunch of different people with different perspectives. And, and that, were, if I'm right, that you were a riding instructor? Yes, I've been a certified riding instructor since 94, CHA certified. Yes. And, um, and then your sociology, you know, I always find it interesting when I kind of dig into people's backgrounds, because it seems <laughs> like that, that actually is a little clue into what you've gotten into later. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. Totally. Because sociology is how, you know, the dynamics of the interactions of different individuals. And so I'm just looking at horses instead of people. 
but they gave me a background. It also gave me an understanding of research. You know, how do you read a research study? How do you know if it's really a valid one? And then how do you apply it in practical terms? And that's uh, a huge so, deal, actually, with, with research because, yes, uh, you know, research is always about controls and controlling as many variables mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. so you have a very right. narrow lens, which is great for research, but not always great when you go back into the, the real world of application of how do you take that, that very focused research and apply it into something that's usable in the everyday life. That's exactly right. That's the biggest problem is there's some great research being done. There's some really sharp researchers and who are, who are really horse people too. And they're doing some great stuff, but you know, it gets published in a, an obscure journal and what horse person reads that and says, oh goody, I can go out and do this with my horse. Right. But this is what I love to do is read this research and say, okay, what does this really mean for us horse people? What can we do with this, with our own horses to make our own lives better and their, and their lives better so we can all have more fun together? And so how long have you been kind of looking at the human research and then thinking about how it applies to horses? I got really pushed. I've, I've always done that. I've always been a voracious reader and I've always been fascinated by, by research and what is, how does the science match up with, uh, with practical application. But I got really pushed into it uh, about 10 years ago when I had a foster pony who, who didn't follow any pattern that I was told about in horsemanship. He was, he was anxious. So I thought I need to do less pressure with him, more positive reinforcement. I'm going to not punish things that go wrong. I'm not going to correct him. I'm just going to set him up to succeed and, and just try and manage things that way. And he blossomed. He went from being anxious to being confident. He went from, I'm not sure about this to, hey, show me something new now. And he met me at the pasture gate. I kept thinking there's something wrong here. He's, so one of these days he's going to blow and send me flying, right? No, he did great uh, and went off and was, was adopted um, a few months later. So I got me researching what, what, went, what went right. And yeah, so the next absolutely. What, what went, you know, what went right? I want to duplicate this. So the next year I said to the rescue, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, a different foster pony, different personality. Okay, they say. <laughs> so, um, yes, we have a pony who has, she's been trained. She just needs some extra riding miles to be adoptable. Went to meet the pony. Um, the director of the rescue put her in, the, in a, uh, an arena and couldn't catch her. This pony was so scared of everybody and everything. She was just flying around the arena um, nonstop. And about 15, 20 minutes later, the director of the rescue is just like, you know, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, let me try. I don't catch horses. I invite them to catch me. So can I, can I put up a, uh, a picture now? Sure. Okay. Uh, so I this. co-host. Hang on. Let me just double check. Yeah, you're good. Is it? Yep. Okay. So here's Brandy. And so, uh, so wait a second before you actually put up that picture, because I think this is oh, yeah. this down a really long. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's just back up a little bit. So, so you started working with some rescue horses and you started having some mm -hmm. really good successes. It sounds like yes. and that was about yes. 10 years ago. Yes. And then obviously you started investigating this, testing that working with more horses. Tell us a little bit about that process. Well, actually, what I wanted to do is work more intensively with one, but I was also coaching a lot of other friends and students on working with their horses in different ways, too, and watching what the research said and what other uh, people, people whose training I admired. When I look at another trainer to see, do, do I want to emulate them? I'm not looking at what's the trainer doing. I'm looking at how's the horse responding. Do I see a horse who's relaxed, eager to do more? 
that's the person I want to watch. And so, so that led you into, I mean, because, you know, you sent me a preliminary of your book many years ago now. Um, I'm thinking, cause I remember that- Oh you, gosh, yeah, yeah, it was. I think it I was. was still going up to Pennsylvania to teach uh, when you did yeah. that. So, mm -hmm. so you started formulating this idea is basically where I'm going. While you're working with your students, you're working with these horses, you started formulating idea and you started writing your thoughts down. Right, right. Yeah, actually it evolved. Um, it started out, I thought it was about how did I change my training technique? And the more I researched, the more I looked at it and the more I watched other horses, the more I realized it wasn't about training technique at all. It was about the relationship that I developed with the horse, a relationship where the horse trusted me. And so that's when, I mean, the title of this webinar obviously is Protector Leadership. So somewhere along the line, that idea came to you. Yeah, well, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's been around forever. Xenophon said, make your horse your um, friend because in battle, your life depends on him. If that's not reliability, what is? Um, so it's been around a long time. People call it by lots of different names. There's lots of people today who are doing it, but they all have different names for it. But as I looked at what's the horse looking for, what makes this relationship so good? And what's the research tell us about how it matches up with horse behavior? Horses don't care who's in charge. They care who's taking care of them. They wanna know who's keeping them safe, who's their protector. And that's why I decided on the term protector leadership because being that horse's protector is the foundation of the relationship. That's what makes it work. And so this is, it's really interesting because, you know, I've had a number of different people on the webinars and there's a theme that keeps coming up over and over. And that theme is about the horse's number one need for safety, to feel safe. Absolutely. That's it. That's it. And whether that's yeah, Sharon Wilsey or, or Sarah Schlotte or, you know, Stephen Peters or, um, you know, any of the people that I have interviewed on the webinars, we keep coming back to this idea. And so it sounds to me like what you've been able to do is take those concepts, look at the research, uh, work with a bunch of people to see how that's going and kind of um, uh, codify it in a way that's actually something that people can grasp. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to do. As I started to understand the concept of this, I kept reading different people and there's, and there's all saying, yes, this is what we need to do. Yes. I'm saying, how, how, how do I change what I do with my horse? Cause I thought I had a good relationship with my horse, but I always felt like something was missing when we were done. He just wander off. He didn't want to hang out with me. And. Uh-oh, he froze. Uh-oh. Um, are you back? You're back. You're unfrozen. People do this. Um, it says my internet connection is unstable. Oh right. boy. Yeah, but you're back. So just pick it up. Again. Okay. We'll just All right. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I kept, I kept doing the research and I finally found somebody local who was doing this and it got him to show me what exactly did you do that you took a terrified horse and now that horse is following you around and running to you for help when she's, when she's nervous. What did you do different? And what he said, that was, that was the day a light bulb went on in my head. He said, I don't put any pressure on her. 
I'm just here for her. I'm her safety. I'm her protection. And if she wants to run off, I, he had her in an arena at the time. He said, if she wants to run off and look around the arena and play with stuff, that's fine. But I'm here when she's when she gets the next thing I saw, the horse had scared herself, ran back to this guy and plastered herself to his head like a dog at heel. And that's when the light bulb went on in my head. It's the we have to take off the pressure that creates anxiety and give the horse some autonomy and, and choice. So that's really interesting because that's counter to most of the kind of training that we see today. Absolutely. This, this is, and this is where the problem is. Um, most of the training says if your horse isn't doing what you want your horse to do, then you need more training. You need more, um, more repetitions. You need to practice it more. This totally leaves out the horse's feelings. So we're not looking at how's the horse feeling about this. We're also not engaging the horse's intelligence. You know, this so, reminds me a lot of Linda Tellington Jones because she talked about horses' intelligence all the way back when I met her in 1985. Oh, they're so intelligent, but well, most training. Well, point. I, I, I do have a caveat on that. <laughs> oh, well, we, no, it's, but it's the kind of intelligence. We don't expect them to be intelligent in the same way we are, but in some ways they're smarter than we are. Yeah, I'm just thinking because about I, I set up a pasture uh, paradise type of thing with, with uh, teeth you know, pigtails and electric wire. And it took my horses six months to figure out they had to walk away from me to get back to me at the gate. And that's when I it's, realized my horses weren't as smart as I thought. Uh, they, actually, they are pretty smart because that is, that's one of those cognitive things for a horse to understand they need to walk away from someplace to get to it. Right. That apparently is a, is, a, is a real cognitive issue for horses. Yeah, it is. So. But the more that I've set up situations like that, obviously, the better they've gotten. And they try to get us to give them the shortcuts, but we like refuse. And now they have figured out. Um, but it was a very interesting thing at first because I've always thought my horses were really bright uh, and they are. Oh, oh, I'm sure they are. Yep. Yeah, but yeah. there's different types of intelligence. And I think that's one of the things oh, that yes. we've got to recognize is that uh, um, a human intelligence and a horse intelligence have have we have similarities, we have some similarities, mm -hmm. and we have mm -hmm. differences. Because yes. ultimately, I mean, with your sociology background, ultimately, isn't am I am I feeling safe? The number one question for everyone, horses and humans. That's a good point. I, I think it is. And look at how often people are concerned about people feel anxious about working with their horses or riding their horses. Anxiety is a huge issue both for people and for the horses. And it could be a lot less so if we had that relationship of being the horse's protector, because the way horses social order works in a wild band, um, that doesn't function like a, a hierarchy. It's a family unit. Everybody looks out for everybody. Right. So when the horses feel like we're protecting them, they want to protect us. These are the horses who will put themselves in danger to shield a person and make sure that, that their person stays safe. You know, I think you can see that with some really top competitive horses too, like event horses who will do everything to keep their person as safe as they can while they're doing these incredible efforts. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's it. That's, that's the teamwork. It's also, it's not just technical teamwork, but it's also based on that emotional relationship where the horse right. feels like my rider's looking out for me. I'm looking out for her. It sounds like such a classical principle. It is. I mean, it, it is in the sense of it goes way back. It's, and it's the same thing to Pluvenel said, what, 600 years ago. Um, you can never trust a horse who's trained by fear, but when he trusts you, he'll ask you what to do when he's afraid. Right. Right. But right. also, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Well, also, um, when you when something when you're not sure what to do and, and when you get in a tough situation, like um, Kim Waltz described, approaching a jump and feeling the gray goose say to her, I've got this. And I felt that same thing from my horse, obviously not in those kind of situations, but it, you know, in other tricky situations, I can feel his body say, I got it. And right. all I have to do is stay out of his way. And he takes care of it. That's that relationship that I think everybody really wants to have with their horse. And, it, and it's a relationship where the horse has the ability to make some decisions and to choose. And, you know, yes. I think yes. that we, um, one of the places where we see that is eventing horses, but also fox hunters and those horses mm -hmm. that get to go out into, um, you know, a more open environment where there are those kinds of situations. Those horses have to be able to make good decisions for everybody. Yes. Um, I can they still remember it. with my horse when he was fox hunting, he he knew where all the hounds were before anybody else. He watched out for <gasps> mm -hmm. fox hunting. But you oh, know, cool. the job where he could be in, um, he didn't like being in the field. He always wanted to be a whip horse, but he, he would, he knew the job. He understood the job mm -hmm. and he loved the job. And so the rider actually one time, as a funny story, I'll just tell this really quickly, but when Al was first learning, um, the rider wanted him to cross a certain place in the river. And Al said, no, I want to cross over here. And, and he said three times. I went, and so finally the rider said, fine. And Al found out that wasn't the best decision, <laughs> but he gave mm -hmm. him the experience. He let him make the decision. And then he mm -hmm. got to figure out mm -hmm. hmm, sometimes maybe I should let somebody else help me with that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's, I think what you're talking about is that when, when a horse feels safe, or a person, and I, you know, I can't help, but we're both mammals. We both have the same design in our nervous system. We both have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. We both want to feel safe. And the, where I see that the most is when I take people out on horseback safari to Kenya and they want to talk about predator prey. And I go, okay, let me let you out of the truck. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and suddenly we are the prey. And I think people forget that humans are prey also. We're the, I tell people, we're the pink squishy thing with no fur, tasty, nice marbles, you know, lots of fat, really yummy. Um, yeah. And no teeth and claws. And no teeth and I claws. Mean, you know, um, just, you know, and the only reason that we, that fight we with. feel safe is when we can have a tool, but when we strip away the tools and look at just ourselves, the way a horse doesn't have a tool, I think that then we can much better understand this whole idea of safety and the need yeah. for safety and the need for protection, whether that's someone protecting us, a horse or a person, or we protecting them, a horse or a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, but I think, I, I think that's a really important perspective about us being prey so we can empathize better maybe with the horse's concern for things. Um, the flip side of that is if we think of a horse only as a prey animal, then we excuse all sorts of anxiety that he doesn't have to have. So the, um, so if we think of it as horses are not just prey, but they're also intelligent animals. So let's give them a chance to use that. And one of the things that makes horses really spooky is that they don't get to use the curiosity that they would use in the wild to help them learn about things. So they would be a fearful of fewer things. Interesting. Um, um, all right. So maybe it's time that we go into your, into your um, 
picture presentation here and start getting some examples of what we're talking about. Oh, well, um, let's, I'm thinking maybe if, is, if the uh, curiosity thing sounds good, maybe we'll just start there. Sure. Okay. Um, well, well you know, I've just, been, and I've been trying to get people just as you're queuing that up, um, to think of horses more as flight animals than prey animals. I mean, the other thing about Africa is when you go there, the biggest, the, the most dangerous animal is an herbivore. It's a hippo, which is actually related to horses. Oh, um, it okay. kills 3000 people a year. It's an herbivore. We would think Yikes. of it as a prey because, you know, it eats grass, but really it's an incredibly dangerous animal. Whereas the lion don't kill nearly as many people. <laughs> um, that is, that's, and that's so counterintuitive. Right. And that's why people yep. get killed by hippos because they yeah, get don't think. In the water and they get killed. And these things have massive oh tusks. But yeah. you know, when we think of, if we start to think of horses as flight animals, that their response to things is to flee. And then the fact that we can find them and, and prevent that. Um, yes. Yes. I think that, that kind it, of fits in here. It, well, it does. One of the big issues um, that people run into is that when the horse encounters something that is unusual, people tend to have this straight ahead idea of like, oh, here's a, a, a creek or here's something strange on the ground. We need to walk right up to it and check it out. From a horse's point of view, as a flight animal, they are cautious. And from in their mind, that's not a sane thing to do. You don't just march right up to something strange. You need to check it out first. Right. So what I've got on these two pictures here Okay, so this let's this get brand. your screen share because we can't see your pictures. Oh, whoops, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's get that taken care of then. Screen share. Um, screen we'll share. And how about that? Can you see them now? Oh, they're coming. Hang on. There we go. Got it. Okay, great. So these are Brandy. On the left, she has just been doing a pack and seen something strange there. Now, and a person would your... say... Is Brandy the the horse that you went that ran and ran and ran in the in the arena? That's that's the one. She she's the one who was so terrified of everything and everybody when she first came to my place. Um, and this was this was a couple of years after she got here, and we staged this. We just we just put a trash a turned over trash can with some um, old bedding sacks fall, spilling out of it, and she stopped and she looked at it, and one might say. It's just a trash can. She's seen trash cans before. Why, why the alarm? But the fact was, horses uh, have incredible visual memories. So she knows what a trash can is, but she knows they're supposed to be in the barn and they're supposed to be right side up. What she saw was something in a wrong position in the wrong place. And that's suspicious to a prey animal. That's, that, that's cause for alarm. So she stopped and she looked at it. And she looked at it. Now, a person would say, come on, walk right up to it. And a horse's natural reaction to that is, no, I'm not going to walk right up to that. Are you crazy? And then, then ensues the fight where the person says, you have to obey me right now because if I let you get away with not obeying me, then I'm going to have all sorts of problems with you. So you have to walk up to this now because I said so. And the horse is saying, this is stupid. This is crazy. So what we can do instead is just what Brandy has done here on her own. She stopped, she looked at it, she circled around it, and we have like 16 pictures in between these two. But the end, you see, she has dug the sacks out of the trash can and has stuck her face in to inspect it. She's no longer afraid of this thing. And a minute later, she walked away, she was bored. 
This is called investigative behavior. It, it, it was triggered by Brandy's curiosity to see what was going on. She used all of her senses. She looked at it. She sniffed it. She listened to it. And then she went up and she touched it. She ended up actually licking the trash can too. All five senses got engaged. Now you can put a trash can any place you want or anything like it. And she does not react to it because, okay, been there, done that, seen that. This is a whole learning process. And horses generalize what they learn and then they remember it. And next time they see something like that, they're not anxious. So the typical scenario of my horse is afraid of something and I need to make him walk up to it gets, causes a lot of fights where the horse's reaction in the long run then is, well, when I see something that looks like that, my rider gets all tense. She wants me to walk up to this thing. That makes me nervous. So let's just get out of here in the first place. So we tend to see horses as more flight animals and less curious animals. If we bring out more curiosity, they teach themselves that things are not as scary as they might look at first. This is this this one. I've got her on lead. She saw and, this tractor tire. It, we're, we're not quite there in the picture yet. Oh, OK. There we go. OK, got it. OK, it um, we, we, we played the same trick on her. We put something there that didn't belong there. And she saw it. She was anxious. So she went behind me. She's saying, OK, Lynn, you're you're my protector. I'm going to observe this thing from behind you and make sure it's OK. I followed her lead. Notice my lead is loose. I let her tell me as she was ready to approach the tractor tire and inspect it. And then in the second photo, there she is off lead and she's decided it's a toy. So the time elapsed. me of something Sharon Wilsey talks about, which is called this, she calls it the sandwich, where the horses really want to be sandwiched between somebody who's going to be out front for them. And then, so they don't have to be that out front horse. It sounds similar in that you're taking the lead there and saying, I'm going to check it out and make sure it's okay so that she feels safe. We kind of trade off with that. I, I will, yes, I, I say I will go first and I will check it out, um, but I'm not going to drag you with me. I'm going to go first, but only as far ahead of you as you're comfortable staying with me on a loose lead. And the funny thing is that when we let them use their curiosity, they get over being concerned about something way faster than we could pressure them into it. So the oh, time elapsed, time elapsed here between the tractor tire is scary and I think I can play with it was about seven minutes. And that's, and this is, and this, as you see, is complete calm. Um, but, but horses trade off with that too. Even a herd, the, uh, in a wild herd, they look out for each other. So if Brandy sees something very alarming, she might go behind me to look at it because she sees me not worried. But if she's worried about something that she thinks I haven't seen, she puts herself in front of me to protect me. And she does that with any, any other person that she knows. So she generalizes that to other people now. Interesting. So there's, um, there's not a fixed role here. There's a changing role. Yes, yes. Now, horses, um, horses tend to have roles in a herd, you know, uh, roles that they tend to take on more. Brandy is clearly the protector in our herd. When something is alarming, she's the first one to check it out. And she's the one the other two tend to hang behind. But she's also very much the protector around people. You know, it's really interesting. And I, I want to go back to your sociology again, because I'm sure that you've done a lot of group dynamic studies with people. And, um, and like, I can so recall being in different groups and watching how um, there's this natural occurrence of people assuming different roles. 
Um, mm-hmm. You'll get more like someone who's the father, someone's more like the mother, someone who's like the nurturer, takes care of all the food, somebody who's more um, the one who makes everybody laugh. Um, and so there's, it's, it's what you're describing to me or what I'm hearing. And I keep wanting to go back to your sociology because I, I think this connection. Oh, it's very much connected. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that we tend to, f- to think that, yeah, yes, horses are different, right? They're not humans and they don't have a frontal lobe like we do, but there are certain social things that we see, whether it's a herd of horses, a herd of people, um, and that interaction in a group dynamic. It's always so interesting for me to watch group dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is fascinating. And when when people think of horses, uh, a horse group as strictly a hierarchy, they're missing all the subtleties right. um, because rank means very little to a horse. It's, it's, the, it's those individual, uh, individual interactions you're talking about that really are what matter and what make a group a cohesive cooperative group. And groups survive on cooperation, not competition. And that's and especially so- true in a, a horse band. Right. And so when we get someone who has the pers- a human who has the perspective of they have to be in charge, if you will, or the, you know, uh, one of the words that I find has been so incredibly abused is the word respect. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. It, well, it is because the way people use it usually to me translates to I expect the horse to be obedient. And worse, I expect that to be obedient without my having taught him exactly what I want him to do. Yeah, and and to basically override all of his uh, normal behavior or natural behaviors just because I'm there. Yes, <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, expecting the that's the same perspective as uh, well. I I just want my horse to know that I'm the safe place to be. That's not good enough. My horse needs to know the whole world is a safe place to be because I'm not always with him and I'm not always right. I want my horse to be confident of his place in the whole world. And so how does what you do with the horses and the whole idea of protector leadership develop a horse that is confident in the world? And there's I, I, curiosity, using their curiosity is a huge piece of it. A lot of what happens when, when as a protector leader, we, um, we encourage horses to use their own minds and we respect their feelings. So as we're respecting a horse's feeling, we're seeing if we see a horse is anxious about something, we don't push them out of their comfort zone. If you're focused only on obedience, then you're not worried about whether that horse is, is anxious. He just needs to do what you told him to do. And that, but if that's, you, that's such a good point right there. I want, I want you to reiterate that the difference between obedience and, um, and I just lost the other word. But, you know, because that's what we, you know, like, okay, so I'm just going to kind of digress here a little with Surefoot. One of the hardest things for me to get the owner to do is to not worry if the horse walks off the pads. And uh, yes, if the yep. horse walks off the pads, that's what we're trying to see. The horse lost its balance or he's not sure about it and he moves. Mm-hmm. And if he mm-hmm. moves, that tells me, wow, that's really interesting. And yet the owners are like, be good, stay there. Don't move, you know, stay on the pad. And it's like, no, 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 let them move. And so, you know, that we, we have such a hang up about and, and rightly so because we're obedience, animals, right. And we can get, mm-hmm. and, but so we have this obedience piece and how do you, how do you, um, uh, lost my word again, but 
you know, because there's a certain amount of obedience we do need. We do need the horses to, to stand quietly for the farrier. We do need the horses to not chuck a fit getting in a horse trailer. We do need the horses mm-hmm. to, um, but at the same time, how do we honor who they are um, and allow them that opportunity? I mean, where's the, there's that line of safety that we always have to address. Yes, it's a balance. So we, we expect all the same good behavior that anybody else does. The biggest difference, I think, is how we get there. Okay, talk we can to us get about a horse. That. We can get we can get obedience with repetition and with pressure. And if the horse still isn't obedient, you can use more and more pressure. And if, eventually, if you use enough pressure, a horse might shut down, and then he looks marvelously obedient. That's what we call dead broke. But he's right. disconnected from his emotions now. Right. And so if something scarier comes along, scarier than the trainer is, that's when the horse blows and everybody goes, where on earth did that come from? But if we got there in a stepwise clarity way where um, we're asking the horse to do something, but we're watching his emotional state. And if he's getting anxious, we need to back off because an anxious horse isn't learning. So we can take him to the edge of his comfort zones. Yeah, we need you to do this, but we're not going to force you to do it now. And allowing the horse to think things through also really helps. You don't need, we don't need to have the horse do it like right, right this minute. I said, you have to do this. No, I've asked you to do this. Okay, you can think it over, figure it out. Just like when we're learning something, we can't do it fast. We need to, right. to, to be able to think things through. So by allowing the horse um, time to think things through, he can grasp the concept of what we want. And one of the big concepts that makes perfect sense to horses is don't hurt other people in your social group. So it makes, it makes sense to the horse. I'm not teaching you. Here's your personal space. Here's my personal space. If you want to come into my personal space, you have to do it quietly and gently, just like I come into your space quietly and gently. If you barge into my space, you're going to hear about it. That's not, that's not okay. That's not safe. And the more quiet and patient we are as we're teaching them, the better they learn. And the bigger impression it makes on those rare occasions when they do something unsafe and you can really get stern and read them the riot act. And then they go, oh my goodness, that, that she never yells at me. So I must have done something really bad. I got to be careful not to do that again. So it makes so that, a much bigger that's a really impression. Good point because it's not just always about, um, you know, and I think this is where it, it's so hard for people to find that balance between letting the horse run you over and dominating the horse. <laughs> you know, it's, I always say, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think the balance is in a lot of that comes from clarity and consistency. Um, and we need to catch it before it happens. Don't wait for the horse to run you over. See him coming. Make yourself huge if you have to throw your elbows out, wave your arms, whatever you need to do. That's my space. Don't run into it. Um, But at the same time, then we want to teach him what we do want instead. So we want to teach him when I'm leading you, I want you to walk right next to me at, at exactly this position. And that's one of the slides. I think I've got one of those back here. When I'm leading a horse, I want that horse's head right next to my shoulder, and I want that horse to walk Hang and step with me. There we go. Okay. It takes a second for the slide. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I, so if we ask a horse to walk with us when we're leading them, and this is a way that we're having an impression on them every time we handle them. If they walk with us uh, and we ask them to copy what we're doing, like synchronize with us, this is part of saying, 
we're bonding, we're part of the same social group, but here's my space. So you need to stay out of my space unless you're coming in very gently. And um, this makes the horses default, watch my handler instead of wait for pressure on the lead. And the more horses develop the habit of watching us and coordinating with us, the less likely they are to run us over because they're busy thinking about something else or because they're waiting for pressure on a lead to tell them to do something different. But it, you're right about it. it. It is that balance is a really, really tricky thing. And people get into trouble on both sides of it. If you're too strict, then you have a horse who's tense and anxious. If you're not clear enough, you have a horse who doesn't understand what his boundaries are supposed to be. Well, and those so, horses, I see them get tense and anxious because they're left out on their own and they, they don't, it, it's like, it's the same with children. in in my opinion, that when the boundaries are constantly moving, it creates oh, crazy making. <laughs> it, it, it is, it, it is. Um, I think the more we discipline ourselves to be absolutely consistent, the less we have to discipline our horses. And the, then for me, it's catching the horse before they start to get out of line. So if my horse starts walking two steps ahead of me, I don't wait until she's pulling on the lead. I tell her right then, hey, slow down, back off. I'm not walking that fast. I want you to stay right here with me. So you just catch those things, make that automatic. And the more consistent and clear you are, the less you have to discipline, but the better behavior you get, because it's just like, yeah, this is the routine. This is how we do things. And I know I can count on my owner for this. And then that, that's, for the, that's the calmer horse. And I think that, you know, we all thrive on routine, um, mm-hmm. um, sometimes to, the, to a fault. <laughs> well, well, I think it's routines have been so emphasized, like you have to feed your horse at the same time every day. You have to do this. I don't think that's the routine horses care about. In fact, I've seen horses be way more stressed when the feeding times at exactly the same time every day. Right. And that's what research shows too, that variable feeding time is actually healthier and calmer. Um, I think the routine that they thrive on is knowing this is the relationship that I have with my person. And this is what her expectations are. She's not going to today give me treats for doing nothing and then tomorrow smack my face for asking for treats. Um, or I don't just get random treats. You know, I, I know I have to do something that she approves of in order to ask for a treat, for instance. So when those things are consistent, then horses know where their boundaries are. And they understand social boundaries because that's how they live in a wild herd. Absolutely. Even a domestic herd, you've got to have social boundaries for everybody to get along. Um, and, right. You know, and a lot of times when they don't get along, it's because horses haven't learned those boundaries because they haven't been raised in an environment where they had an opportunity to learn. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting when you have a horse that uh, for whatever reason, and there's many reasons, but for whatever reason, hasn't gotten that social interaction at that very early age. Um and then to watch them in a group of horses and how dumb isn't the right word, but they don't, they don't get it. They have to be reminded like, yeah. every day. <laughs> they're like, yeah, they're like clueless. It's yeah. like they, they miss some, well, it's well known that if dogs and if puppies and kittens aren't socialized at the right, in the right window of weeks of age, then they are they forever have difficulty and with dogs the specific difficulty is is um is fear 
Yeah. So they're more fearful of other dogs, more likely to get into fights. And I wonder if the same is not true of horses. I have not yet seen a study of it, but I suspect the same is true of horses. If they don't get socializing during a certain specific window of developmental opportunity there, um, do they forever have trouble getting along with their own species? Well, and that's, you know, when you look at orphan foals, it, for whatever reason, or horses that foals that have wound up in the vet clinic because they were ill, they just, I've, I've known a number of them and they don't have the same social set of skills that a horse that has had a normal experience has. Um, and it seems yeah. that it tracks their whole life. That certainly makes sense. And I honestly would not envy anybody raising an orphan foal. I think it would be a really tough job yeah. to do that and have a horse come out mentally healthy. As right. Unless they had a lot of other horses for that orphan foal to go forward. If they have other horses with them, that really helps in a, um, in a wild band, the whole family raises the foal. Older right. siblings play with them. The father plays with them. The father um, babysits when they go wandering off to explore the world. So they learn from everybody. So, so in that herd environment, they would have that sense of protection from the other horses in the herd. Um, and there would be that, that sort of communal raising of babies um, yes. so that they have a social structure. And then, yes. you know, we come along and um, need to some, so what are some things that we can do, simple things that we could do to help kind of develop that relationship where the horses see us as the, their protector versus, you know, somebody who's just going to tell them what to do all, all day long? Well, um, looking at this, this picture of the way I'm leading Brandy, one of the things that foals will do with each other is they, um, they synchronize. They'll walk together, trot together, do the same thing together. So if when you lead your horse, every time you lead, you invite your horse to synchronize with you, this is something they automatically understand. So I, I, well, I walk, she walks, I stop, she stops, I turn, she turns. So we're doing this together. And once the horse gets the idea of, oh, I'm copying my person, this is a bonding experience. It's a reassuring experience. It says we're part of the same social group. And then um, the second picture, I had, I had taken Brandy out into the arena to um, do some leading practice. And when we were finished, I took her off lead. She has, she's free to go around and nibble weeds around the edge of the arena all she wants. But instead she followed me around off lead. Now she'd only been with me a few months at this point, followed me around the arena. And every time I bent over to pick up a cone, she bent over just like she's doing there and put her nose down to the ground. So this was voluntary copying uh, and synchronizing with me, even though she was free to go and, and eat if she preferred. It's a great picture because your arm on the cone looks like her neck and head. Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what struck me when my husband got that picture. It's like, yeah. And, and this is what I was feeling. It's like, she's right there with me. Now you see, she's very close to my space, but at the same time, she was gentle about that. She was careful not to be barging into me. She was just staying with me. Right. And then, then you can take this to a game where you let the, you copy the horse. And games may sound frivolous, but in fact, anytime you play a game with a horse, you are having a bonding experience because this is something fun. It's positive feelings. And if it may give the horse a chance to make some decisions, to use their own intelligence. So one day we were out in the arena together and Brandy put her foot up on the stock tank. 
She'd probably seen me do that one because I, I use that as my mounting block, but she put her foot up on top of it. So I went over and put my foot up on top of it next to her. And now that's the game we play. She'll just walk over to it sometimes randomly, stick her foot on top, and then I come over and copy her. And that's a game that, that some horses can really enjoy. Um, another thing that you can do that's really important is, um, is indulging that horse's curiosity. When they're worried about something, instead of asking them to walk straight up to something new, stand back, let them be curious. Um, let them approach it at their, own, um, at their own pace and stay out of their way. You know, we're, we're taught we need, to be, we need to be in control. You mentioned this earlier about we're supposed to always be in control. The horse is always supposed to be obedient. Now, the only rule when my horse is investigating something is you're not allowed to yank the lead out of my hand and you're not allowed to crash into me. Other than that, the horse may go wherever she wants. And of course, by the time we've done a lot of this leading where the horse is synchronizing with me, pulling the lead out of my hand or crashing into me is not in their thought process. So... I indulge the horse's curiosity and I say indulge and that's probably not the right word because I encourage it because the more they, they use their curiosity in this investigative behavior, the more they learn, the fewer things they're afraid of. At the and same time, it's a, that, yeah, it's such a good point that, um, you know, when you watch foals and you see foals in there, they keep, I always say that curiosity oh, yeah. are two sides of the same coin because you see them go up to something yes, and they'll they are. and run back and then come back again. And, you know, curiosity yes. killed the cat. It's also what <laughs> works with the horses. Um, um, and, and yeah. also, you know, so many people want to confront their horse dead on to something and, you know, no, wrong way. Yeah, exactly. Million years ago when I worked with, uh, first work with Linda Tellington Jones, it was, always have one eye that can see the open space that if you come ah. sideways to it, as opposed uh -huh. to head on, if you come head yes. on, their only option is to wheel and spin. Whereas if yes. they come sideways, they can see the scary thing, but they can also see the open space. And, you know, I've, I've taught that for years in my riding clinics and it always works because yes, people want to like confront the horse head on. And mm -hmm. now you've, Put them in a bind. Exactly. As long as they see an escape. And if you watch uh, a horse investigating something, often as they first approach it, they're sitting back on their, on their hind end. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready for the spin and quick getaway if I need to. Right. But if you give them the escape option, you give them room to move further away from it, they don't need the escape option. They aren't going to panic. They, they will move towards it at their own pace. And... And I think this also goes back to that we, we um, Dr. Peters talked about horses vision and that they have horizontal pupils. And because of those horizontal pupils, they see the world very different than we do. Um, mm -hmm. And from, from his work, I actually created glasses to help people understand what it's like to have horizontal pupils, which I've later realized were great for riders. <laughs> <laughs> And so I've created something called lookup glasses, but their, their origin was in helping people understand how horses see. And when they have these horizontal pupils to see anything down around their feet, they have to really tilt their head. And then of yes. course, you know, the typical example is trying to get the horse in the corner and he's trying to see the, the, the barrel in the corner and he's tilting his head and shying sideways. And then what do we do? We kick him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, and I'm glad you brought up vision because this is another huge piece of why horses spook. Horses um, are partially colorblind. They're red-green colorblind, which means they are not fooled by color camouflage like we are. So if there's a deer off to the side in the woods, 
we don't see it. The horse spots it. I have a, uh, I have a friend who's red, green, colorblind. He's a hunter. He says he is the first person to spot a deer every time he said the shape jumps out at him. Oh, wow. So think about what that means for a horse. They see the shapes of things we're not seeing. Yeah. And of course, they also can smell things that we Absolutely. don't smell. So when somebody says a horse spooked at nothing, there's no way we can say a horse spooked at nothing because we don't know what they saw. We don't know what they smelled. And their hearing is not that much better than ours, but it's in a different register. So they can hear things that we don't hear. I have saw, sat on bronze in the woods where he stops and he's watching something. He's tracking something that walking past in front of us through the underbrush. I can't see it. I can't hear it. I can't smell it, but I trust him yeah. because it's a horse's job to monitor their environment, to expect them to pay no attention to the environment and focus only on the person is completely unrealistic. Absolutely. And that's a setup for making everybody unhappy. Yep. Yep. No, that's really, really true because, you know, and, and this is where I think COVID has actually been a good thing for horse people in this respect, in that it has put us on a heightened state of alert. And, you know, you, you walk into a, a room with a bunch of people and you're kind of looking around going, hmm, you know, am I safe here? In the same way a horse would be in any environment, anytime, yeah. right? Yes, right. So like I walked into this store, this is way early on and I was very paranoid, um, I will admit it. And I walked in and there were people without masks and, you know, I knew that the things were, and I just, I had to leave, I had to escape, I had to get <laughs> like right. SAP, no matter what I came in for. Um, but now, now suppose you were with a friend who said, don't be ridiculous, Wendy, we're staying here. Okay. Now, what kind of feeling does that generate in you? Not a feeling that this friend is looking out for you. But if you're with a friend who says, yeah, I, I respect your concern here. Let's, let's leave. Yeah. Then and we you're, could stand you're, outside you're, for a while. That's the person you want to hang. Yeah. That's the person you want to want to hang out with. So a lot of what we, the other thing we need to think about with our horses is what feelings are we engendering when with whatever we do with them we show them something new and scary if we pressure them toward it we're not a protector right we're just a person who applies pressure but if we're willing to stand there and wait and let him check things out stay out of his way we don't need to reward him we don't need to coax him we don't need to reassure him we need to shut up and let him get on with it put our own agenda on hold and the funny thing is i've got this seven minute thing the longest I think that I have ever waited for a horse to decide that it was okay to go forward was probably 10 minutes, but seven minutes, it seems like a magic number that, okay, I got this ditch figured out. I got this creek figured out what it is. I'm, I'm good to go. Of course, it's going to take longer for some horses in some situations, but for the most part, if we let them do it for themselves, they're ready to go way faster than somebody can push them into it or, um, or circle them around it or whatever other um, program somebody wants to do. You know, I think the hardest thing for people is to wait. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I had an example of this when I went with a friend, she wanted to take her, her young warm blood on his first ride outside the arena. All went well for about a 10th of a mile and we came to a ditch. And to him, this ditch was just too big, too scary. He could not get across it. And she tried for 15 minutes with her crop and, and her legs, exactly as she'd always been taught. She was doing what she was taught to do. And he was backing up and sashaying. And when he got ready to buck, I said, wait, I, I decided I needed to risk insulting her with a suggestion I knew she would think was insane. I said, don't do anything. Just let him back up 
and let him look at the ditch. He looked at the ditch for five minutes and then he strolled across it like he'd done it all his life. And that was that. The great. And then, (laughs) and then when we came back across the ditch, he didn't even look at it. Right. Just just strolled right over. Actually, I think he took a flying leap across it when we came back, which he thought was pretty funny, but no more fear of it. That it's like seven minutes and you have to wonder, this is, um, you know, what that makes me wonder is, is what the average time it is for the horse's nervous system to go from a state of anxiety back to a state of all is well. Ah, right? yeah, good, good where, point. You know, talking about talking with these other neuroscientists and and uh, and people, you know, basically, and Stephen Peters said this, you know, wait long enough and the horse will come down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Question mm-hmm. is, what is that wait time? Um, well, you can influence that wait time somewhat with what you do. If you're pushing that horse out of his comfort zone, that wait time is going to be forever yeah. because you're just going to make him more and more anxious. If you let him back up, what I've found works best, let him back up to the edge of his comfort zone. He needs to be close enough to be concerned. So he's observing it and checking it out, but not outside his comfort zone, because then we get into, I just want to escape. I'm not learning. The edge right. of the comfort zone is where the learning happens. Right. And that leads us right into like the whole polyvagal theory and the seven stages from lethargic to calm, to alert, to hyper alert, to hypo freeze, to hyper freeze. It takes Mm -hmm. us right into those different stages. I was just talking about that with another group last night that um, if we push these horses and and the other interesting thing is that horses that may appear calm, but they may not be, they may not really be okay. And that's, that gets a little challenging in terms of reading that. But basically, Stephen Peters is saying, if you wait long enough, the nervous system will calm down and reset, right? Just like the baby okay. that, mm-hmm. um, you know, winds up, you can see him in the grocery store and, <laughs> and you know what's going to happen, right? right. Yep. And then you have to wait. <laughs> then, yeah. you know, and yep. the nervous system resets. And so, you know, it's interesting that you find that it's typically seven minutes, uh, you know, not that there's any research on it, but that really makes me wonder if there isn't, um, and maybe it's something that we should actually look at with our horse. In other words, um, place them in a tiny bit of stressful situation and then slightly back off and time how long it takes for them to recover. Well, you know, it would be really fascinating. It would be to, you know, of course, you can't recreate any scenario exactly, but to see if there's a, a like a, an anxiety zone or, or a comfort zone correlation between how quickly they recover or how close or and how closely you've pushed them. But you have to be reading the body language pretty, pretty carefully. Sure. And I think, but a lot of what, um, what I find people do, the people who are really good at engaging horses at, with, encouraging horses to trust them, read horses' body language very well. And that doesn't, that's not rocket science. A lot of reading body language is empathy. You've got to be willing to see what you see. You've got to be, I've talked to many people who say, well, I, I thought maybe my horse was nervous, but the trainer kept saying he was just being resistant. Yeah. And then afterwards you say to yourself, I should have walked in the ring and said to the trainer, this lesson's over, you're done with my horse and rescued the horse. And yet almost none of us have the nerve to do that. Well, that brings up such an important point about uh, authority and how we respond to it yes and whether or yes. not we you know and that could be a whole nother discussion in itself but absolutely um, you know yep. that and it can work 
it can work both ways. In other words, you can have an authority that can push you and, and then you can break through a process that you've been stuck, but you can have an authority that threatens you and that actually takes you backward. And, and that's such a, you know, we're talking about nuances and subtleties, but I think the, the, the difference is uh, whether or not you feel safe with that authority that when they say, yes, you can, you can. Yes, yes, I think so. And the other thing that I've seen is that um, people who look at a horse with empathy usually are reading a horse pretty accurately. Um, but the people who look at a horse with authority and say, uh, but it's, it's a question of what, what are they, how do they assess the horse's behavior? If somebody says my horse is being resistant, he's being a jerk, anything, any bad name, that person is not really looking at that horse's emotional state because that's not how horses act. It's not how they think. If somebody looks at a horse and says, yes, he's really anxious about that. We need to adjust what we're doing here and get him calmer so he can start thinking. That person is probably reading that horse pretty accurately. Yeah, and this is, you know, the thing that Surefoot's taught me more than anything is that most behavior problems are balance problems, whether that's mental, emotional, or physical. And when we address the balance problem, we see a huge change in behavior. That's really fascinating because um, in, in her book, um, in Sue Harris's book, uh, Horse, Horse Gates, Balance and Movement, she mentions balance and she's mentioned this to me too, as one of the most overlooked problems that horses have. One of the most overlooked causes of, um, of so-called bad behavior. Um, you know, so my, my horse won't canter or my horse keeps bucking or my horse does this or that bad. A lot of times it is a balance problem. Right. And, and this is, like I said, this is what Surefoot has taught me more than anything is that when I address the physical balance of the horse, the emotional and mental balance comes in. Now, obviously nothing's hundred percent, but when you ground that horse, when he feels secure on his feet, then he's able to evaluate rather than react to his environment. Yep, that makes perfect sense because a horse who's off balance is actually um, in danger because a prey animal who falls down is really in big trouble. So balance, balance issues are, are really huge for horses. And yeah. it certainly makes sense that a horse who feels comfortably balanced is going to feel more secure in general. Yep. And, you know, I mean, just from a physics perspective, given the, this, you know, a thousand pound horse, the head is 40 pounds, the head and neck is a hundred pounds. You swing a hundred pound weight over to the side. And if you're not able to stand squarely, when you do that, you're gone. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, and then add a rider on top who may not be completely balanced herself and think how much compensating that poor horse has to do. Right. And so I wonder how much of the time we're actually, um, you know, in our attempts to uh, dominate or control horses, we're not addressing their sense of stability that allows them to feel secure. And that in what you're doing here with the choice to investigate and explore, that what I notice a lot of the time is that there's very little um, close influence. In other words, physical influence that you're doing with the horses, that you're modeling what they're doing, you're mimicking what they're doing, you're giving them a ton of space. And in that they 
find a sense of stability with you. Yes. Yes, I think that's a good, good way to put it. It helps them feel safer and comfortable. If you think about it, um, and, and studies show this too, that lack of control over your environment, lack of control over your life is a stressor in any species. Wow. And let's face it, horses have so little control over their lives. They, they don't, they, somebody else decides when they're going to eat, when they're going to, when they're going to go out and pasture, when, you know, they, when they're going to breed, when they're going to be weaned, who they're going to stay, to be with, all of those decisions are made by somebody else, what their job's going to be. And so every little piece, and this is another thing people can do, any little piece of uh, choice that we can give a horse helps their mental stability, but it's got to be the right choices. So for instance, my horse, um, <clears throat> when, we're, when we get ready to go out to ride, he might want to detour past the water tank and get a drink. That's fine. That's a good choice. Get yourself a drink. I'll wait while you get a drink. Um, if he says, no choices, I'm not going to go for a ride today. I'm going to go back in my stall. No, sorry. That's, that's not a choice you get to make. We need to give them appropriate choices and within boundaries. Mm-hmm. So when, when Bronze had had a lot of trail experience, he, when, he, when we first rode on trails, if we came to an obstacle in the trail, his view was like, oh, something in the way. I guess we turn around and go home. No, Bronze, we look for a way around it. Well, after a while, he started looking for ways around things. Now, I don't even bother looking hardly. I, we come to a trail obstacle. Okay, Bronze, what do you think we should do? And he will start around it in the safest, usually a safer place than I find way to get around the obstacle. That's a choice I give him because he earned that by demonstrating that he understands the goal is we get around the obstacle safely. And if he turns around, I know he has said to me, there's no safe way around this. We're out of luck this time. Right. You know, problems out. That's you make me, you remind me of Dr. Peters because I haven't talked to him in, in quite a while. He was some of my early webinars, but he talked about problem solving and that, oh. you know, when these horses yeah. are out on the range, they're born on the range in a herd, they have to problem, they have to, they yes. have to figure out how to yes. get the water, how to get the food under the snow, mm-hmm. how to get mm-hmm. around the different environments and the different footing. Mm-hmm. And, and our, and our, for lack of a better word, domesticated horses are, are sort of confined horses. They're not given the opportunity to problem solve they're exactly told stand here do this pick up your feet you know um and so and so the more i listen to you the more it's that it's giving them the autonomy to problem within boundaries right yes yes problem solve which then develops their intelligence and then can be translated to problem other problems to solve Exactly. And when they understand what their job is, they solve the problems associated with their job. Like an event horse has to solve the problem routinely. Of how do I get over this jump safely? Right. And what you said about horses being trained with, with repetition, most horse training involves only one of horses for learning styles. Horses learn not only by repetition, they also can learn by, um, by observing, they learn through their curiosity and um, they, they can learn by observing others. So we're not giving them the opportunity to use all of the different ways that, that they can learn. They're using, we're using only conditioned response, which is the worst, most efe- inefficient way yeah. to try to train them. Yeah, you know, it, 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 so many things come to mind in this conversation, but years and years ago, I was in Switzerland and went to watch Circus Canine, which is 
Um, it was 75 or 85 years old at that point, and it had a lot of horse acts and all the training was open and they just had a little, you know, air filled tube circle, a circus ring that they would train, but it was all positive reinforcement and they developed skills. So they didn't drill routines, they created skill sets and they taught uh -huh. different skill sets uh -huh. and then they would tie uh -huh. those skills together into a routine. Whereas so often what we want to do is drill the horse and not address the balance or the curiosity or allowing him to have uh, an expression about how he do does that or a choice in problem solving that solution. Um, but the more we can exactly. allow the curiosity, the problem solving um, and and have it in a positive environment, then, you know, it's the, what the acts that they had were incredible. They were amazing. And like I said, all the training was open to the public. There was nothing ever hidden. That would be really cool. <clears throat> well, one of the things that makes horses want to be with us, want to be part of our social group is when, when they have positive feelings when they're with us. So training, like you describe, can, um, hooks into their play emotion. And play is a very positive emotion. So if training involves play, then why wouldn't they want to be with the trainer? Why wouldn't they want to go to their training sessions? There's, there's a Mustang trainer whose horses line up outside her arena waiting to come in and play in the arena with her. Is, is, shouldn't that be everybody's goal? Yeah, that's really fascinating. And, and again, you know, there's always the, it's so important for people to not just listen to the words, oh, I play with my horse, but to go and watch with empathy, the empathetic side of someone quote unquote yes. playing, because I have, you know, unfortunately I have seen where people have used the words, but it's not what I experienced. And that happens all the time. People use the words that sound right. You know, people will say I'm using positive reinforcement, but they're not, or I respect my horse, but they don't, you know, we, we need to not watch the words. We need to watch the horses because the horses are the ones who tell us how they're emotionally responding to what's happening with them. And so what are ways that we can improve <clears throat> our ability to tune into the emotions of the horse in order to different, because that's the hardest part. The hardest part is being mm -hmm. able to differentiate, you know, you have someone of authority or someone that you respect or someone that's supposed to be the expert and you go there and, you know, they use words that you hear but how are you supposed to really know whether this is honest and real or just kind of like put words over a piece of cake and it's still rotten? A lot of it is trust your gut and trust what your intuition tells you you're reading from the horse. So you watch the horses, watch their reaction. Do they wanna be with this person? Sometimes you'll see a horse follow somebody around. They follow that person because they have found that the alternative is to run laps around a round pen. Well, then of course they'll follow. The real question, and, and this is something I, I can't scientifically demonstrate, but an impression that I have seen is that one of the biggest tests of your leadership and your relationship with your horse is what happens when he gets scared. Say you're both in the same pasture, you're both in the same arena, but you're not connected to each other with lead rope. He gets scared. Where does he run? Does he run away from you or does he run to you? Hmm. If he runs to you, then whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. But That's... so your question was, how, how, do we, how do we know who to trust? Yeah. 
watch we have to watch the horses trust your gut if somebody if anybody who calls horses stupid or believes that horses want to be dominant is on the wrong track they're not seeing horses true sensitivity or their true social nature and so i think this is where it's so hard for people um because you know we tend to be a bit not everyone and less so but we tend to um discount i know so many people that have told me so many stories where it's like why did why were you still there well because right <laughs> we, we get we get caught up in the authority figures we're taught from from childhood listen to the authority figures listen to your parents listen to your teachers listen to the police officers listen to you know anybody who's on authority that's ingrained in us mm. and so it's really hard to say that person set up as an authority figure but that person is not doing good things with the horses that person is using pressure and intimidation to make it look like he's trained that horse really fast but that horse is scared you've got to trust learn to trust that you're seeing what you really think you're seeing right. i once saw a, a, a full page spread in a magazine with a famous trainer and the trainer was in a round pen and he was working with the horse and his body language was like this and the horse's body language was like yeah and and I showed these pictures, I folded it back so you can see only the person or only the horse. And I showed these pictures to a bunch of different people of all different levels of understanding of horses. And I said, what do you think that horse looks like? They said, scared. What do you think that trainer looks like? Scary, I'd run from him. Wow. And yet this whole, this whole auditorium of people are sitting there watching it going, wow, look at that. That horse is doing this, that, and the other thing. Because a lot of, the, of this is like, is the sheep mentality of people. It's like everybody says. so. You have to be able to trust your own gut, and then you need to go find other people who um, can support you in yeah. what your own intuition and your own gut tells you is the right thing. And and you have Just to have trust to be your brave horse. sometimes and, and believe in yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you do. You do. Um, that's right. All right. Why don't you go ahead and unshare your screen here because we're we're we've um, gone over our time, which is totally fine. I. I've been thoroughly enjoying this conversation. So uh, have I. It's been really, really fascinating. And, you know, it just um, it just keeps reinforcing so many of the things, so many of the guests that I've had on the webinars. And I think that that's what, uh, you know, the more we can realize that th this isn't, uh, that there's more and more help out there and there's more and more people out there that are thinking about this in, a, in this different way, which, you know, let's face it, we were all raised from a military school of riding if we're you're in my age. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Yes. Um, and that uh, and horses have evolved and we have evolved. And, you know, I, I don't think that we can so often I find on Facebook, somebody will put up a picture and I'll, I'll be so like, wow, that was such an amazing feat that horse did. And people will go, well, that's cruel. But it's like, no, wait a second. It's a different time and it's a different situation. And we have to recognize that we're constantly evolving in our thought and that, you know, what we used horses for back then, as you said, right, they were our, you know, we had to protect each other. They were either our military vehicle, they were our way that we got across the prairie, they were our transportation, they were our horse in battle that had to take care of us. You know, there's, 
we're constantly evolving in our understanding of our relationship, both with ourselves and with our animals. And I think in, um, yes. it, it's, that's the thing that's important is to look at things historically, but not judge them from current day emotion. Um, yes. Right. Um, because that, that, that doesn't appreciate what that horse did then. Um, but this has been fascinating and I have really enjoyed Lynn. So tell people, you know, where can they find out more about this? And I know you have a book, so tell us what, or maybe show uh, us out of your book. Yes. If I may, I'll, I'll show you the, uh, the slide of the book Yep, there that's Brandy and bronze and me. And that's Wait, my book. It hasn't come up really yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I keep forgetting. <laughs> tell me when it's there. I will. Okay. So, uh, well, we have, we have a book. And my horses feature big in the book because they helped me demonstrate all of the points. Everything we talked about today, the, all those, the ideas, the concepts. Okay. We don't have a picture um, of your book yet. So you have to hit screen really? share. Really? Oh, yeah. Did I hit screen share? I didn't yep. hit share. Oh, jeepers. And Janelle has put up a link to Amazon with your book. <laughs> oh, thank you, Janelle. That was wonderful. Okay. Share screen. But we would like to see the cover. So we're no, we know we're on the same page. Yes. There, there we go. Thank you, Wendy. Okay. Awesome. There um, we go. Yep. And I also have a website, lynnacton.com. I've got a lot of articles on that. And that they include, as the book does, a lot of the research. Um, I like to take a research article and explain what it means for us as horse people, how we can apply it, what it, you know, how it helps us understand our horses better. So That's I've got awesome. some articles on my website and then I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And my horses are, um, they're pretty much with me on everything that we do. So they show up on uh, Facebook and Instagram pretty regularly. That's great. Well, thanks, Lynn. This has been really interesting. And it, like I said, it's um, what I just love is to hear like so many of my guests are talking in the same direction and about the same things, but from slightly different perspectives, which is always so helpful because we all hear it slightly differently. Yes. Um, but you know, it really feels like we're all moving in the same direction of greater understanding and empathy with our horses and ways to communicate with them that form a better partnership. I think so. And in the dog world went through a huge revolution in the last 20 years from really um, rough training to very much positive reinforcement related training. And I think the horse world is overdue for a revolution like that, that we, that people go from uh, the, the, um, conditioned response and paying no attention to the horse's feelings to looking at when we watch their feelings and factor that into our training, then we can have so much more success and so much better a bond and a more reliable horse. And, and, you know, the one thing that we didn't touch upon, but, you know, taking the time in the beginning, it takes less time later on. In other words, you know, if you you deal with it at a low level over and over and over, you're constantly dealing with it. But if you actually address it, in the end, it takes less time. It just takes That's a little right. more upfront time. That's all. <laughs> Very true. Awesome. Yep, it, it's thank just you. to be inconsistent. Yep. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you, everybody, for watching. We'll have a webinar. Um, so on, I'm going to AAEP, American Association of Equine Practitioners, and we're going to be there Saturday through Tuesday. So I think our webinar next week is going to be on Saturday with Laura, Will, uh, Laura Plunkett. So we'll, we'll pop out an email on Sunday. You can always join the email list at murdochmethod.com. And every Sunday I put out the guests for the following week. Um, so you can check that out there. Thanks to everybody for joining me. Thank you, Lynn. This has been really fascinating and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed having a chance to talk to you.
Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it too. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.